kiddos are dismissed. Masks are dismissed. If you'd like to take it off, you're welcome to do so. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 10 today. If you are new and visiting with us, we are in the a series, week three on the book of Daniel, and we are um, we're gonna we're taking our time getting going, building a lot of context and background in the book or in the first chapter, and then we will uh, we'll pick up the pace and move through the entire book um, in the next few months. But Daniel chapter one verses eight through ten this morning. I'm gonna read that and then ask for God's help. Daniel chapter one. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should... He see that you are in worse condition than the youths, than the other youths who are your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Let's pray. God, we just confess that this is your word, and we ask that you, that living king, that conquering king, that gracious salvation offering king would come and help us to understand and receive your word this morning. As Stacy said, would you have your way? Would you speak through me? Uh, we, your people, need to hear. Amen. I want you to imagine with me, and actually imagine. I want you to think. Close your eyes if you need to. I want you to imagine with me that you are a teenager. That you're born in Judah. This is the, you're, you're part of the people of God. You've heard the stories of how God made you into a people, rescuing you out of Egypt, bringing King David to, to be the conquering king who establishes uh, the mighty, the, the, the king, the kingdom of Israel, and and Solomon reigns in glory, and then and then you hear the stories about the civil war and and the kingdom being broken into two, and Israel and Judah, and and then you've heard about how Israel was conquered by the Assyrians previously. That that's that's your people. That but your your country the, the, of Judah has been preserved, but you've heard about them being conquered. You, you've been taught that, hey, that we're the people of God. This is how we live. We observe these dietary laws. We worship God in these ways. We most certainly do not eat these things, and, and this is how we do our life. And then maybe you've also heard about the, the prophecies and the, and the prophets that are warning the people of God, hey, if you don't turn back, you are on your way into sin and you're you actively rebelling against God. And if you don't repent, God is going to bring judgment upon you. And you've seen that already happen to your, your neighbor, your neighboring country up north, the northern kingdom of Israel. And you, you've heard these stories. And so the possibility of being invaded by a foreign power is very real for you as you are brought up. And then I want you to imagine that that happens, that the Babylonian Empire overtakes Assyria and then moves in to siege against Jerusalem. And not only is your king taken off the throne and are you now occupied by this Babylonian Empire, but they're going to take some of you with them back to Babylon. I want you to imagine you get picked 
your whole life you've been celebrated as, as a gifted person, as a beautiful person. The society has said, man, th- these are our people. This is the popular crowd. These are the use of a promise headed toward of nobility and headed toward influence. And they say, okay, that's who we want. Bring them here. And here is 700 miles away. So imagine that. Imagine that you yourself are taken from your family as a teenager and made to walk 700-mile foot journey from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. You're in a new country, in a new world, essentially. The center of the, the, the known world, this ruling empire of Babylon, and there you are. You're given a new name. You're told you'll no longer be referred to by your Hebrew name, which indicates your reliance upon Jehovah, God. Instead, you're going to be called something else, something that indicates your reliance upon the Babylonian list of gods and Baal derivatives and likely are castrated as a young male. And you're going to be educated they tell, they tell you, can you imagine on that 700-mile journey, what are they going to do with us? If you got to speak, you get to ask, hey, what, what, what are you going to do with us? And, and the plan is to basically re-indoctrinate these young men to be influencers, to be people who help establish the Babylonian empire, not by force and crushing everyone, but rather by reassimilation and redirecting, reshaping of worldviews to make sure that everybody's reliance, everybody's dependence, and everybody's loyalty is aimed at Nebuchadnezzar, who is what they would say the king of kings, right? The, even the god of that day that everyone must bow their knee to. And, and you're going to be used to perpetuate his kingdom, You're going to be used to influence your own people and the rest of the Babylonian Empire into this great nation of Babylon. Imagine that. And they're not not killing you. They're not actually mean, you know, other than they're giving you a new name, stripping your identity, and possibly castrating it. Like, beyond that, they're actually offering you a really good life. You're going to go to this university of Babylon, if you will, a three-year program where you're going to learn the new language. You're going to learn the new worldview. You're going to learn to think like they think and to value what they want you to value. And all the while, you're going to eat from the king's table. What would you do? How would you respond? What would you be feeling? Now, we know the story, most of us, you've heard the story of Daniel. And we know that Daniel and his friends are, show great courage and boldness, wisdom, and they're celebrated throughout the scripture. In fact, Daniel's one of the few men in scripture that there's, there's really nothing negative said about. Doesn't mean he was perfect, doesn't mean he was sinless, but there's really nothing to look back on it and grievance in Daniel's life. And he's this hero, right? We know about the lion's den. We know about the, the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We, we, we know about him not bowing. We know about him interpreting the dreams. We know how he's used. And, and so uh, most of us would like to think that in those moments, we would be bold like Daniel, don't we? We would like to think that. I remember 
my wife and I were trying to reflect back in, into the, the late 90s whenever the Columbine shooting happened, and we were, we were in school ourselves, and, and, and there was some, some Christian martyrdom in that where there was some, some questions about, do you believe in God? And then if so, they were executed. And, and so that spurred a lot of conversation amongst junior high and high school students of our day of, what if somebody asked you, hey, do you believe in God? And knowing that if you say yes, they're going to pull the trigger and execute you, what would you say? And I remember there's this sort of, you know, almost like this, yeah, I'll do that. Come at me. You know, like this, this, this like courage that wants to rise up, you know, in this conversation, at least amongst me and some of my friends. And, and, and that's sort of, most of us would like to think that in those moments we would be brave like Daniel. We would be, we would be brave enough to say yes, that we would step up, that we would indeed have that sort of faith and that sort of courage in those moments. But Here's what we have to realize. Daniel, his friends that show this great courage and resolve, they didn't get there in the moment. This wasn't a hyped up coaching moment. This This was something that was deeper for them, that was shaped for them. And in order for us to move forward. In the next week, we're going to talk about how, you know, how do we live out obedience. As our world changes and we are going to be required to say certain things or not or assimilate or do these things, and, and we're, going to, we're going to have to face some of our own, certainly not to the scale that they are, or at least not yet, but we're going to have to face some of our own level of are we going to be persecuted if we do this. And before we get to those how-to and what that looks like, we must t- stop and look at, okay, how did Daniel get to this place where he is able to live out that sort of bravery, that sort of faith with his God. And, and so we, we have a clue here. This is just a couple short verses, but it, it, it's, it's telling, I think, as we stop and look at what we see at the very beginning and the very end of these passages of how Daniel and his friends got to where they are and what enabled them to live the way <clears throat> that they did. And so in verse 8, I want you to see that, that Daniel did not just make this moment or make this choice in a moment, that there was a, a deeper shaping going on. In verse 8, we see right off the bat that Daniel did what? Call it out. What did Daniel do? But Daniel made up his mind. What's another, ver- another passage or another translation say? Determined. What else? Resolved. Okay, so you see this language that, that Daniel, like you got to think about this. He, he's walked 700 miles. He's thought about that. That doesn't happen fast. I don't know if you've tracked your, you know, your, your walker, you know, how much you walk in a day. But getting 700 miles from one place to another in a, in a caravan of people, Right, you get mad at traffic and people that move slower than you. Imagine moving in a caravan of people 700 miles on foot. Right? He's thought about this. He's made up his mind. And that's the, that's the language that we see, that he has made up his mind, that he purposed in his heart, that he determined or he resolved not to be defiled by the king's food or the wine that he drank. So what is going on there? Why did Daniel resist here? Why is that the line in the sand? I don't want you to think about all the reasons that Daniel had not to keep his resolve. Because Daniel didn't get, like, it wasn't like, hey, do you want to be taken to Babylon or not? That wasn't a question he got to choose, right? Plucked out of your family, out of your, like taken to another foreign country. He didn't get to ask that. He didn't apply for the University of Babylon and get selected after a process, right? That's not how this worked for him. Daniel didn't get to ask if he wanted to trade in his old Yahweh-centric name for a new Babylonian God name. He didn't get to, ask, he didn't get to choose that. And likely, a couple weeks ago, or, or last week maybe, I, 
I said that, that commentators are sort of divided on whether or not Daniel was made into a eunuch and castrated his friends. And after further study, I'm actually, I'm actually much more in the camp that he very much probably was. Like, I, I believe that he probably was. And we don't get, like, from just the Daniel text, there's certainly clues that lend itself that way. But as you look at uh, even the Isaiah 39 passage that was a prophecy saying, hey, if you don't repent, then some of your young men are going to be carried off. This was, you know, years before this actually happened. It says they will be made, they will be made eunuchs, they will be castrated. And if that was just like this empty warning, then, then I don't think that that's, if it's, because there's some confusion about what the language there means. Eunuch later gets, that, that word gets just attributed to just government official. And so some say, well, that could just be, you know, Ashpenaz's official name or whatever. But actually upon study, and then, so before they go, there's a warning that young men will be carried off and made into eunuchs. And then later, there's prophecy saying, or there's, there's a, as the people of God are being called back, there's, there's specific mention in those sermons of, hey, those of you who have been made eunuchs, come back. There is a place for you in the, play, the, the, the family of God. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in coming weeks. But So all that to say is I actually think that he, he probably was castrated. He didn't get to question, he didn't get, he didn't get to choose that though. So all of that has already happened to Daniel. How many of you would still have your resolve in that moment? Like, I, I want you to humanize Daniel. Before we make him into this hero that we all just fantasize, oh yeah, I could be like him. I want you to, I want you to think about what he's been through. I want you to think about the, the reasons he has not to carry out his resolve. What is, why does he care about Jewish dietary laws anymore. He's been, he's been taken out of the promised land and into this pagan empire of Babylon, into their culture. What, what does it matter? I can no longer live out the life that God has for me, so why bother? So many of you have had those same thoughts, right? That, that you've already sinned so greatly that what does it matter to keep going forward in your faithfulness to the Lord? Or maybe something like Daniel, things were done to you as a child, as an adult, things were done to you that, that made you question, is it worth it? Why even obey? Why even bother going forward? That ship has already sailed. So Daniel, it says, has resolved. After all of that, he's resolved. He has a plan. He has made up his mind not to be defiled by the king's table. So what's going on there? What, why not eat the king's food? Because uh, let me tell you, I, what, what do you think you'd be hearing if you go back to that, that, that situation we imagined earlier? What do you think you're hearing? Because this doesn't happen in the vacuum. It's not just Daniel and Radshak and Benny. It's not just those guys. Like, there's others in this university process, right? There's others in this program. How many, how many of them you think are going, hey, it's not that big a deal, guys. Just eat the food, right? We've already, we've already left Jerusalem, right? We've already been carried off. Like, what does it matter? Like, that ship has sailed. We're not going to be good little Jews anymore. We're in Babylon. Don't worry about it. Enjoy the steak, right? Enjoy the bacon. How many, like, honestly, that's, if you experienced peer pressure as a kid, and if you were ever a kid, and even as an adult, like, you did, you remember what that's like? You remember the things that are said to you? What's the big deal? Why wait? I remember that as I was a, I was a kid in, in high school, and, you know, trying to carry out my commitment to, to not, you know, be sexually active before I got married. I remember in the Christian fellowship meeting, right? These are the leaders of the FCA. I remember people going, really, Jordan? Really? You're not going to wait? Or you're going to wait? You're not going to, like, you really actually think you're going to do that? What's the big deal? 
other Christian leaders saying that to me, right? So you don't think Daniel was hearing language like that and hearing, feeling pressure? It's a big deal, man. It's just some food. What's the big deal, man? It's just, it, it's that. And, and so Daniel resolves, and, and, and here's the deal. You got you to think, it's not just about, like, what's going on with the food there? Well, you got to think about why Nebuchadnezzar is doing that. And we looked at that last week, our enemy's tactic. He wants to redirect our dependence, redirect our loyalty, redirect, or redirect our affections to something other than God. And so I think Daniel sees that coming, right? And, and it's not just about the, the food not being kosher and, you know, cooked and, and prepared in a way that's, that's not kosher for the Jewish um, people to eat. Like, it, it is some of that, and, it, and it's not just, although it is some, it is not just that it's been offered to idols prior to coming to the king's table. The, the legend, or the historians believe that they, they, they would, in, as a part of their worship to the, the, the god Marduk, right, one of their their pagan gods, the primary god that had a temple that they celebrated every year, that they would prepare all of this food and offer it to their god and bring it into his temple. And after that was finished, right, after the gods ate what they wanted or they had ample time to consume, then they would bring, then it would move to the king's table. And that's what he would eat. And so, so this stuff was, was likely all offered in pagan idol worship prior to coming to the king's table. That is most definitely an issue for Daniel, is if he partakes of that, he is sort of uh, acknowledging the deity of those false gods, and he does not want to do that. But beyond that, because he, he, he does take the vegetables, there's, there's some more nuance there. And I think what you see from, from Daniel is this plan to, to not be captured by the spirit of Babylon, to, that he sees this coming, that, hey, there's, there's real danger here. Yes, I've already been stripped of my identity and given a new name. Yes, I've already been taken from my homeland and placed in a new place. Yes, maybe my sexuality has been altered for me, but the real danger lies right here as we, as we move into this place where we begin to be lulled to sleep by the enemy, where it's not that big a deal, but if I continue, if I continue to, if I take this, then, then man, there's, there's real danger here. I think Daniel is, is seeing that come to pass where he's saying, listen, if, if I allow myself to be enjoying and feasting at this king's table, then there's a real danger that I'll lose sight of who my God is. And we'll talk more about that obedience and how do we wire our life up in that way next week. But, but for today, what I want you to think about is Daniel's resolve. And here's where it comes from. I, I believe as we, as we go on through this passage, he says he's made up his mind. He's not going to be defiled by the king's drink. He's not going to be made to depend upon Nebuchadnezzar. That's the angle there. That's what he's cultivating in this is to, is to make sure these guys are indoctrinated, not just with that education, but with a dependence upon their, their comfort, their pleasure, their diet. All of it comes from who? Nebuchadnezzar, right? That this is, that they, they want that sort of loyalty. And so verse nine says, and God gave Daniel. So Daniel has this resolve. He's made up his mind. And we'll see later that Daniel knows that may mean his life gets cut short, right? He, he's, he has counted the cost that to make this plan may very well mean he gets executed. But here's what's fascinating. Verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is one of the, the king's primary officials, Ashpenaz, that is in charge of this university, this indoctrination process. God gives Daniel 
favor. That's a fascinating thing to think about. If you think about what, what's going to lead to success and what, what's going to lead to influence and make your life better, all of the, the leadership studies, all of the, you know, the books you would read would say, hey, go, you know, go into this process, get what you can, and, and, and become a leader so that then you can change it on the backside, right? And you could compromise a little bit. You're, you're, you're invited to do that. Compromise your morals just a little bit now, and then you'll, you'll get in a place of influence and power, and then you'll make a difference, Right? I'll just go ahead and, you know, I know this, I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't miss church this much. I know I shouldn't compromise here and look away when we're cooking the books here. But you know what? When I get promoted, then I can make a difference, right? I'll go ahead and look away. That, that's, the, that's, that's what you would be told. But Daniel resolves not to do this. It doesn't make any sense. It, and all, like, all things on paper would say, hey, Daniel, that's a real bad idea. The only thing that's going to get you is, a quick, is an express lane ride to the execution, but what happens? God gives him favor. God gives him favor. Now listen, God gave, God's the author of this whole deal. If we remember back to week one, God gave is the Judah, the King Jehoiakim, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control, but God's the one allowing him to have this influence. And so in this place, God gives Daniel favor in the sight of this chief eunuch. But it gets interesting because not only is Daniel inserting himself into this place of tension, he's going to bring old boy with him. And so the chief of the eunuchs, verse 10, said to Daniel, he says, listen, I like you, but if I do this, the king who assigned your food and drink, He's going to notice you're in worse condition than the other you. So what's going on there? Well, we see back in, in the previous verses, uh, in verse 5, it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They would be educated for three years, eat that food and that diet for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So that's where they're headed. Hey, three years, you're going to have your moment, stand before the king, then your destiny will be like your, your assignment, your, your, your lot will be determined then. Okay, you're the, what, you, what you're going to do for the king from there on out. And so that's where they're headed. From here to there, it's preparation time to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar. So Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, says, Daniel, I like you, buddy, but if we do this, right, if I give you your own diet, right, because that's what he asked, hey, can we, can we, uh, can we not... Uh, defile ourselves. Can you give us our own diet? He says, I fear the Lord, my king, who has assigned you food and drink, because this isn't going to go well. He's saying, if, if you only eat vegetables and everybody else is eating the meat and, and, and all the fat, like, they're going to they're gonna get plump. They're going to look good, because that, some of you are going to wish you lived in Babylon times, because for them, what was healthy was like a little bit more meat on the bones, right? right? So a little bit, little bit of that that, that healthiness was not necessarily the shredded muscles, but rather, you know, a little bit of that spare tire and that, those love handles. Okay, that, that person's healthy. That person's looking good. And so uh, uh, Ashpenaz says, listen, if we do this, you just eat green food and drink water, y'all are going to be skinny, and the king's going to know something's wrong with them, and he's going to look at me and go, what have you been doing? And if I say, hey, I just I gave them what they wanted, then whose head's on the table? He says, not just yours, Daniel. You're not just putting yourself in danger, but he says, I fear my Lord, the king, who's assigned you this food and drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the other youths who are your own age? And so you would endanger my head before the king. So Ashpenaz goes, listen, man, this is not just about you. I appreciate your boldness. I appreciate your faithfulness, and I like you, but listen, if we do this, I know how this ends, right? Ashpenaz has seen other dudes' heads get lopped off whenever Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. He knows how this is going to end for him. And so he has pause. He has 
fear. And, and here's what you got to think about. That guy, Ashpenaz, he works closely for the king, and he fears him that way. How do you think Daniel should fear Nebuchadnezzar? Is this like not a big deal? Is Daniel just like not scared of Nebuchadnezzar? Right, he should be. Right? This is, guys, this is the, 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 the king of the empire of Babylon, which is ruling the known world at, the, at this time. Jeremiah 4, 7 refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the destroyer of nations. That God has given this guy power to come and ravage the nations in his judgment. And so, yeah, th- this is not a guy to be trifled with. This is not like, oh, Nebo get it. It's no big deal. He'll let me pass. No, no, it's a real big deal, and he will not let anyone pass. Right? This ends with a sword lopping off somebody's head. And Ashpenaz gets that gets that, and he goes, we need, to, we need to think about this. But Daniel has still resolved in his heart to not be defiled. So that's what he's up against. That is what he's thinking about. It's not just social pressure. It's not just, you know, you know not being a good Jewish boy anymore. This is, this is what he's looking at. This is the, the cost that he has had to count already, knowing that to defy this king is to write your own death sentence. So how does Daniel have the resolve to go ahead and stand firm in the midst of this? Ashpenaz fears Nebuchadnezzar. The only way that, ne- that Daniel doesn't share that fear and go with the flow is that Daniel fears another king. Daniel fears the king of kings. Daniel knows that the only reason Nebuchadnezzar has the power that he has is because his God, the king of kings, the king of ages, the name above all names, has already established the time in which Nebuchadnezzar will rule, and it will only be temporary, and that he will indeed stand before that king. So he's going to stand in front of Nebuchadnezzar in three months, or three years, but he knows that ultimately everybody's going to stand before the king of kings. Ultimately, everyone will have to give an account for what they have done before the maker of the world, the king, God himself. And it is that that allows Daniel to live the way that we celebrate him living throughout the rest of the book. Now listen, you've all heard that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. We've heard that. It's true and it's right and we think, but, but what does it mean? How does it flesh itself out? What does it mean for a Christian to fear God? Right? We're saved, right? We have favor, we've received grace and we've received mercy. Do we need to still fear God? What does that look like? It looks like Daniel understanding that, yes, there's grace, but there's also a wrath from that holy God. And we don't separate out the two. We have that problem in, in today's church where we've overemphasized, or that's not the right word, we've, we've only emphasized the grace of God without talking about the holiness and the justice of God and the judgment of God. And when you take away one or the other, you get a misconception and a and a, a, a mangled view of the God that we worship. And so Daniel has a right view of the God that he's going to stand before one day, and that is what gives him the resolve, the ability to live out that resolve before this Nebuchadnezzar, who is, again, a significant force. This is, this is the king of Babylon. And yet Daniel goes, yeah, I, I, I'm not worried about you, buddy. You could take my head. But I'm, I'm going to stand before a God who could take my soul. I'm going to stand before a God who holds my eternity 
in his hands. You could shorten this life, but I'm going to stand before a God who has life everlasting waiting for all of us. And what I do in front of him, what he thinks of me, how he judges me matters more than what you can do to me. And so Daniel has resolved. So, so that's the big idea is that we as God's people, if we're going to be faithful in the midst of a faithless culture, if we're going to be faithful in the midst of, of persecution and, and changing times, if we're going to be God's people, we can't just imagine that we will be those people in that moment. We have to have resolve in our heart. We, we have to realize that Daniel's view of God has been shaped far beyond just this moment when he stands before Nebuchadnezzar at the University of Babylon choosing whether he'll be assimilated or not. We don't know how. We don't know a ton about Daniel's family. But we know that he was raised in Judah. He was raised as one of the people of God. And, we, and what, we, what we have to believe and just kind of put together is that Daniel, by someone, whether that be his parents and grandparents, which is the most likely, but it could have been a mentor, it could have been somebody else of influence, has helped him understand and view God rightly. And helped him understand that, hey, listen, our God is a God who is good. But he's also a God who doesn't just clear the guilty. Let's look at uh, Exodus 34, 6, where God had revealed himself to his people particularly to the leader of his people, Moses, he says this about himself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him. If you know the story, this is Moses saying, hey, Lord, can I just, can I just see you? Can I just experience your, your presence? And, and God doesn't show himself fully, but it, it's the, you know, he's not in the storm, he's not in the fire, but he's in the still small voice. It's a fascinating story. Read the whole chapter. But, but I want to look at, this is what God says about himself. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Said the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, we, most of the time you've probably heard that passage quoted and they probably stopped before they read this part, didn't they? But by, he will by no means clear the guilty. The guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what is it saying? It says, this is who I am. I'm a God, and I'm a God of steadfast mercy and graciousness, and I'm slow to anger, but I will by no means clear the guilty. What does that mean? It means we start to, we start to understand that the fear of the Lord, part of that. It's not just this, I'm afraid, it's this, and it's not just awe and reverence. That's sometimes what we talk about, like it, it means this awe and reverence, and it does, right? But I could feel that awe and reverence. There was a beautiful sunrise this morning. I felt some awe and reverence before that. If you've been to the Grand Canyon or the mountains, like you feel, or the ocean, like you feel this sense of, whoa, I am small, right? I am small, and you have reverence for that and awe for that. And that's true of God, but it's not just that, because this is a, a person. It's not like the, the Grand Canyon, the ocean, those are impersonal forces. They're, they're huge, and they should make us feel small, but guess who created them? Yahweh. The all caps, Yahweh. Yahweh. And so fear of him is not just this fear of this impersonal force, but fear of person, of, of a God, a living God. And that... That shapes and transforms how we live here and now. Because it says, yes, I'm a God who's gracious and mercy, but, and even slow to anger, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. What does that mean? God's got a really, Pastor Aaron Patrick used to say, he's got a really, really long wick, right? He's really, really slow to anger. But 
we're not going to get away with anything. We, saw, we see that, right? For 490 years, his people had refused to obey the command. Specifically, one of the major commands was to give the land a Sabbath. They just refused. They were supposed to, every seven years, give the land a Sabbath. They just refused. And for 490 years, God said, hey, cut it out. Come back to me. Hey, stop doing that. But you know what? They didn't get away with it. They, they owed God 70 years. And guess, guess how long they're in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. God's going to get what it, you're not getting away with anything. There's a guy, I'm not endorsing or recommending, but he's got a lot of popularity in the last few years, named Jordan Patterson, who's a clinical psychologist and has wrote a lot about just the philosophy and how to live. And, and there's some really interesting stuff, but there's some strange stuff that he says as well. But as he's talking about, uh, he, he uses the Bible, although he, he doesn't believe like we do. It, it, there, again, there's some weird things. I don't endorse him, but he says this thing that's fascinating. He's talking about the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here's how he says it is because he says in his 25 years of clinical psychology and walking with people and, and, and counseling them, he said, which if, if they haven't broken the moral law, then somebody in their life has. That's how they got into clinical counseling, right? And so he says, listen, I've never seen anybody get away with anything. What he means by that is you may think you get away with it in the short term, but in the end, you're going to receive retribution for that. Now that can be twisted into this karmic like stuff, which is why I'm saying I don't fully endorse. But what he's saying is you don't get away with anything. You may think you've not been caught. You may think you have, have slid one past your authority, but you don't get away with anything. And, and listen, that's partly what it means to fear God. That's part of it. What it means to fear God is to understand that, that you don't get away with anything. What you do in, in the secret, what you do in the darkness of your own room, of your home, what, what you've deleted on your web browser, you haven't gotten away with that. What you've not told anybody, you've not gotten away with that. And listen, when you keep that in mind, you're going to live with some more wisdom, right? That's kind of easy dots to connect, isn't it? When you keep that in mind, you're not getting away with anything, that's going to influence how you live. But more than that, that's also where we start to be able to receive the good news of the gospel. Because we all have to start there understanding that we haven't gotten away with anything. And even if we do good and try harder and get better, we still have a debt with a holy God who can't be erased. It can't be just forgotten about. He's not just going to clear the guilty. Well, you're a better person now. It doesn't matter. Your debt still stands. He doesn't just clear the guilty. You're like, well, I thought we got forgiven. I thought he forgot about that. I thought he removed our sins from east as the west. Well, he does. But you know how he does it? He doesn't clear the guilty. He transfers that guilt from Jesus or from us to Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That you're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. We all stand before God with a debt, a ledger that we could never pay. We could never get back. So like Daniel, you need to understand whatever comes at you in this life, you're headed toward a judgment throne. You're, you're headed toward a day when you're going to stand before the throne of God and have to be judged for what you have done. And guess what? The verdict's already in. You're guilty. You're guilty. You've sinned. You've rebelled. You've, you've turned your nose up at God or even worse. And you've said, I want to do things my way. That's just, that's just true of me and, and you and everybody. That's not just you're really bad and so you need to come over here and get this. No, it's, it's humankind born into sin, and without intervention from this holy God, there is no clearing of the guilt. 
That's why we celebrate the cross. That's why we celebrate Jesus at communion each week as we remember and we're reminded that we have a debt that had to be paid. We had the wrath of God was coming at us. We know we're going to stand before him and we have no hope. But Jesus says, you know what? Martin Luther called it the great exchange. He says, I'm going to stand in your place. And what belongs to you and only you, I'm going to take upon myself. Jesus had no sin. He had no guilt. He had no wrath stored up against him from the Father, and yet he stands in our place. He climbs on the altar on our behalf to become the propitiation for our sins. What that means is there is wrath from God. His wrath will be satisfied. It will be poured out. There will be no clearing of the guilt. There's not just this past that he gives. If you're really nice and you ask nicely, please forgive me. No, no, it had to have propitiation. It had to be satisfied, and Jesus does that on the cross, church. Amen? Jesus says, You're my righteousness on the cross is going to provide the power for salvation because death and the devil and Satan and sin has no hold on me, and yet I'm going to let them overtake me so that I can become victorious on the other side of the grave, and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, which is my righteousness because I've taken your unrighteousness, your filth, your sin upon myself. It's the great exchange. Praise God. He takes our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I so that you and I could know the love of God, so that you and I could be accepted, so that we could become righteous. You say, what does all this have to do with Daniel? Daniel looked beyond the three years where he was headed toward Nebuchadnezzar. He looked beyond exile and, and what was going to happen to him in this life, and he knew that one day he was going to stand before the judgment seat of that God, and he reverse-engineered his life to live for that day. To live for eternity and not just for the present. And it is that knowledge that gives him the wisdom to live well in Babylon. Church, we need that knowledge if we're going to live well in today's world. If we're going to stand firm and be faithful in the midst of rapidly changing culture, we don't just do it issue by issue and moment by moment. And when, when, when that gun gets pointed at our head, or what, like we don't just wait until then. We need to resolve now that we won't be defiled by the spirit of this world, that we won't be duped into, into sinning and living a life of dependence upon anything but God, that we are going to keep in mind where we're headed. And that is before, that is to judgment. Hebrews says that there's a point in a man wants to die, and then after this comes the judgment. That Daniel, much like his, his, the father of the great nation of Israel, Abraham, uh, Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God himself. But that's what led Abraham to be faithful in the midst of it. And Daniel is much like that, where he's, he's in this great city of Babylon. He could even have power and influence. Life could have been decent for him, as decent as it can be if you can't you know, enjoy merit. I mean, that's a whole other side deal, but I'm just saying, for me, you take that, I don't know, anyway, I'm getting distracted, but just don't castrate me and expect me to be real happy about it. I'm just saying, just saying. Nonetheless, it, it was, he's eaten from the king's table. Like, it was not a life of suffering and persecution on that. Like, it, it could have been pretty good, and yet he knows, he knows that his destiny is not just 
His life is not just about how, what's life going to be like in Babylon. How comfortable is it going to be? How successful am I going to be? How persecuted am I going to be? What can I, he knows it's not about that. He's looking for the city that has foundations. Amen. We sing about a kingdom that cannot be shaken, church. That is the truth of us. We have a kingdom who cannot be shaken. And yet we have a God who we know is not to be trifled with, is not to be messed with. And so we hold him in right regard. We hold him in, in right reverence, knowing that this is a God not to be taken lightly, not to run away from, not to scoff at, not to dismiss. Is Oh, that's not that big a deal. You realize that's what Satan does in the garden, right? That's not that big a deal. I know he told you not to eat that. It's not that big a deal. You won't really die. This is why theology matters. This is why right thinking about God matters. That's another way to say theology. What you know about God matters. It's not enough to just know that you're a sinner and you're on your way to hell, but if you, you know, believe in Jesus, then you can be forgiven. Like, that's, that's a good start. Like, that's where you need to start is understanding you, you have a fear of the Lord because you have a, a wrath stored up against you and you're going to stand before him. That's where you start, right? That's where you understand, oh, I need a Savior. But beyond that, we have to have a rightful thinking about who God is. Otherwise, we're going to we're going we're gonna to minimize one part of God or another. We're going to minimize either his, his wrath or we're going to minimize his grace. And what happens when we do that, when we don't think rightly about God, when we're just talking about the wrath and judgment of God, what is that going to create? Two things, a bunch of legalists and a bunch of licentious rebellion. People are going to say, yeah, what does it matter? Right? I, I've already... I've already, that ship's already sailed, I'm already unholy, I'm going to do what I want, or that's silly, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm headed to hell, I might as well enjoy what I can here, right? Or it's going to make prideful people that say, can't do that, can't do that, no, 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 that, that, you know, you can't watch that, you can't do that. I got all these lists of laws, these are Pharisees, this is who Jesus comes at, got these, all these lists of laws of things I can't do because of the wrath of God. And so we create this prideful, legalistic bunch of people who are trying to earn the favor with God by obeying some rules. On the other side of that, if you overemphasize grace, you never talk about the judgment of God. You never talk about the wrath of God. You're going to create a bunch of people who it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal if you disobey. It's not that, it's not that big a deal if you, you know, God's forgiving. You, you know what? If you want to live that lifestyle, as long as you're a good person, right? God's a God of love. He's a God of grace. See how, you see how we get things twisted? We have to hold both of these things in tension because they're both true about God. We don't separate them out, right? It's not God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. God of the Old Testament was mad and angry. God of the New Testament's happy and, and forgiving. No, no, no. Both exist. He will not clear the guilty, but he will Allow that guilt to be transferred to Jesus if you trust in him. You confess you're a sinner. You cry out to Jesus to be your savior. Your guilt can be transferred to Jesus on the cross. We have to hold that in right tension and to think rightly about God if we're going to have the resolve that Daniel had in our world. So what does it look like? Well, I want you to think about how do you, how is the fear of God cultivated? How is the fear of anything cultivated? Because here's the deal. Fear God, fear, like, you're fearing something. You're, you're, and here's, here's another way to look at it. What do you take most seriously? Okay? What do you think about that? What do you take most seriously? If you're a parent, dare you to ask your kids that later. Ask them, say, hey, what did mom and daddy take most seriously? be telling 
What do we take most seriously? How do you get at that a little bit further? Well, what, what, do you, what do you get mad about? What do you get excited about? What leads you to despair if, if it's threatened? Like, you see where I'm getting at? What, what do you hold in regard? Because so many Christians, they, they want to come, they, they come to church, they, 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 they say they're Christians, and they, they come to church and they say, yeah, I, I believe in God and I know where I'm going whenever I die. But when it comes down to it, like, do we take missing church as seriously as we do missing a sporting event? Do we take missing church as seriously as we do as missing school? Do we take missing church? Like, do we hold them in the same regard? And some of you are going, Jordan, it sounds like you're getting into legalism. No, no, I'm just saying, what do you take most seriously? You're going to have to miss church sometimes, but how do you respond to it? What conversations are you having? Is it no big deal? Or is it a really big deal? And we grieve it, and we're going to find another way to worship God. And, and You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we have to think about what are we valuing? What are we taking the most seriously in our life? Because that's what creates this, this reverence, this fear, this respect of God. Because if you're honest, some of you are far more fearful of losing your status than you are of losing your relationship to God. You're far more fearful of losing your comfort than you are of losing your holiness. You're far more fearful of losing your wealth then you are losing your righteousness. You see what I'm saying? When we actually boil down and take a look at our life, what does it say about what we value? What does it say about what we have reverence for? What does it say about what we fear? You see, somewhere along the way, Daniel had somebody that helped him understand, hey, we're God's people. And our God is, a, is an awesome God. Right, the kids would say he's a bad dude. Like he's 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 got the ability to squash the Egyptian army. He turns seas into highway. That's a crazy story. You should read it in Exodus. Like God is a powerful God, and that's our God. And yet, He loves us, and He warns us, and He tells us how to live. And if we don't live that way, we'll pay for it. We have to keep that in mind. We're going to stand before a living God one day. We live for that day, not for this moment. We live for that day, not for this moment. Daniel looked ahead to standing before, not Nebuchadnezzar, but for, before the king of kings, and he said, okay, I'm going to reverse engineer my life. I'm going to make sure that my life is postured in such a way that I'm living for that day. And if it takes me out early, so be it. I get to be with Jesus. If I get to live long and if I have to suffer for Jesus' name, so be it. You realize Daniel's suffering for something he didn't do, right? He realized that. Daniel wasn't a, part, Daniel wasn't a landowner that chose not to, to give the land a Sabbath. Right? He wasn't of age. He didn't have his father. And yet he's one that's carried off into exile. And he still is resolved to live for his king of kings and to worship him and to pray for him. Not just a, a bitter, I got to do what's right. No, he, he's rightfully thought about God. He's been shaped by, he's been rightfully discipled, Deuteronomy 6, right? Talked about God in his home as we go, given a context to understand the judgment of God, knowing that just because the Babylonians Babylonians have, have sieged Jerusalem doesn't mean God has abandoned them. How many people do you think are saying that? God's abandoned us. What's it matter anyway? Babylon's taken over. God's been defeated. Why don't we just do what we want? Why don't we just get the best life we can out of this deal? Did you think they're saying that? And Daniel goes, no, no, no. Our God's not been defeated. He's allowed this to happen because we are a sinful people. 
He's extended grace to those who will cry out to his name. The fear of God stays in place for us as Christians. I, I attached an article uh, and, and a book, um, but the article from John Piper uses this illustration, and it's how we're going to close too, is that as, as the, the wrath of God looks a lot like us being on a mountain uh, way up above elevation and a storm is, is, is coming in, and we know we have no chance of surviving the, these winds and the storm that is coming, and, and it's far greater than, we have, we have no hope, right? There, there's no stats that say we're going to survive this deal. And so we start to look for a refuge. We start to look for a crevice or something that we can climb in to, to be sheltered from this storm that is coming. He said that's a lot like what it means to fear God because Christ on the cross, the gospel, provides us that shelter. And when we climb in, we're able to now be transformed in the way we see that power displayed. We're able to worship because of it, but only because we have a shelter, we have a safety from it. That's what... Christ on the cross allows us. His wrath is going to come. It's going to be poured out on the world. All justice will be served. Every person who has done something wrong will be found out and will be prosecuted appropriately. But for those of us who call on the name of Jesus, we have a cleft in the storm. We have a refuge. We have a rock that makes us secure and we're able to see the wrath of God and go, praise you, Lord. Praise you. You've provided a way for me to be safe from the storm. His name is Jesus. His, our guilt can be transferred, our, the wrath can be passed over us and placed onto him. And church, that is the good news, and that is transformative for us as we live life here and now. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth, and I pray that it would, it would permeate our hearts and have the effect that you would have it to uh, accomplish today, that bones would be transformed in armies, that you would shape us as your people into a people who are faithful in the midst of a faithless culture, that you would tra transform us into a people who have a resolve to not be defiled by the spirits of this world, that you would transform us into a people who are hopeless and entangled in our sin, into a people who are set free and are looking to eternity and not just to our present. And that, Lord, make us your people. Father, for those that are struggling to understand what it's like to fear you and be loved by you, may the gospel just speak a sweet truth over them and invite them into fellowship with this holy God. Lord, would you do that sort of work here in our midst today? We ask and, and hope that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to have a time of response. And um, we say regularly, we, we want to we respond to God. I'm going to have a prayer team come forward and hang out on the sides. And whatever you've got going on, it may have nothing to do with the sermon, but you can come before God.